Sri Shivayanda is PayPal's SVP and CTO, which is a long way away from his original dream of being a pilot in the Indian Air Force. But being the SVP and CTO of a payment company that in 2018 did $578 billion in total payment volume and 9.9 billion transactions in 200 different markets in about 100 different currencies is still a pretty big deal. On this episode of IT Visionaries, Sri takes us through his journey and explains all the ways that PayPal has made an impact on the way people make payments in the digital age. Enjoy this episode. IT Visionaries is created by the team at Mission.org and brought to you by the Salesforce Customer 360 platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Build connected experience, empower every employee, and deliver continuous innovation with the customer at the center of everything you do. Learn more at salesforce.com slash platform. Welcome to another episode of IT Visionaries. I'm Ian Faison, Chief Content Officer here at Mission.org. And we are on location, PayPal HQ here in sunny San Jose, Shri, what's going on? There's a lot going on. Exciting things happening in technology all the time. Exciting things happening in payments all around the world. And it's a great time to be in this space. Turns out money plus email. There's something there. Um, I'm so excited to talk about PayPal. I've been uh, a longtime fan, um, huge fan of, of how you made the complex so simple and safe and secure. So we're going to get into a lot of PayPal stuff, a lot of your background. But first, how... Did you get into technology in the first place? Um, when I was a teenager, I actually wanted to be a pilot in the Indian Air Force. Tried three times and that didn't work out. Why didn't you make it? I, I didn't make it because I didn't get through the physical tests in most cases. Uh, I would get through the aptitude test, but didn't ever make it past the, the mandatory physical test. But one year after most of my friends went to college, I actually started engineering school. I went to school to do mechanical engineering. But in the first year of engineering school, I had the opportunity to make a choice between either buying a motorcycle or a computer. And uh, I made the choice to buy a computer, primarily because one hour of computer giving away at that time would actually get me a whole day of motorcycle. Because most people didn't have a computer at that time. That's how I first got involved with computing. And uh, I wrote a lot of software that didn't keep uh, my curiosity um, fully quenched. So I, I went in and I started to open up the hardware and look at hardware too. But that's how I first got started in computing. So for those folks who don't know, um, what what goes into the role of, of CTO at PayPal? What's the scope of your responsibilities? I have two roles at the company. On the one hand, I'm the chief technology officer. And as a part of that, it's to ensure that We have a cohesive technology strategy across the company. The choices that we are making in both modernizing and scaling uh, and securing PayPal to the extent we need to are are done in a way that um, uh, it's it's a strategic choice, it's a deliberate direction, uh, and it's uh, uh, consistent across the whole company. Uh, At the same time, I also run information security, uh, infrastructure, uh, internal IT, developer experiences, and core platforms. Um, think of this as all things that are foundational for the technology stack on which you build all the experiences for our customers. And, and those are the two main roles that I play at PayPal. So do you, so you kind of manage the like employee experience for the tech stack, like internally, and then also, you know, externally for, for the product for customers? Yes. So the, the 80% of my job, I would say is about uh, serving the external customer and making sure that we are getting the right features in front of them in a way that is safe, secure, reliable, up all the time. Uh, and at the same time, uh, the employee constituency in the company and making sure that they're productive um, as they do their jobs, whether that is an engineer um, on a product development team or a person in sales. And then what is kind of the scope of, of PayPal now? What I know the company is in a lot of different things. Um, and, and I'm curious, like what it, what's, what's the state of affairs here? Um, to give you an idea, I mean, PayPal uh, has continued to grow. It started off by uh, like, and many of you may know this, but uh, beaming money to each other or Palm Pilot is where PayPal first started. Yeah. And then uh, it became a way of sending money or email and eventually it became extremely popular on eBay uh, as a way for consumers to pay merchants. 
Uh, eBay acquired the company in 2015. Uh, PayPal got split out from eBay and became an independent company again. Uh, but in the process, we've acquired many different companies as well. Uh, if you look at it today from a scale perspective, uh, in 2018, we uh, closed the year with about $578 billion in total payment volume. Wow. And uh, uh, it was uh, about 9.9 billion transactions, 200 different markets around the world, uh, about 100 different currencies. And uh, we're not only in person-to-person payments, but we are in checkout, we are in invoicing, we are in remittances, and we want to be relevant uh, in payments no matter where there's a need from a consumer or a merchant. Well, I can tell you there was a need here at uh, mission.org because we recently became a PayPal customer on on the lending product. Um, and it has been a fantastic, you know, full disclosure here. I mean, it was just an awesome experience. And, uh, you know, lending is brutal. <laughs> and uh, and it was just, it's been it's been phenomenal. So our, uh, our COO, Stephanie, is uh, tip of the cap from her uh, because it's been awesome. Yeah, no, you, uh, that's a great point you brought up. And I didn't even mention that we have a credit portfolio. And as a part of that credit portfolio, we have small business lending, uh, which we know helps our customers a lot um, in growing their businesses from from where they are. Well, it definitely helped us. Um, I want to get into the Geek Squad. Can you tell me who this is? Well, the Geek Squad, of course, I mean, I'm the chief geek and uh, I have uh, a large organization here. And uh, what we do is we ensure that the key things that we need to deliver for our customers that are not features are done in a great way. So at PayPal, um, given that we are in the business of trust, security is the number one concern. So we invest a lot in information security, not only in things that we need to do defensively to protect ourselves and our customers from cyber attacks, but also in designing uh, both our infrastructure and software in a way that every transaction is safe and secure. Second is our merchants um, rely on us being up all the time. They want us to take every single transaction on their behalf that we can. So being reliable and up 24-7, 365 is a critical need. We continue to modernize our infrastructure on a, on a very regular basis. Every single year, we talk, take on an area and we modernize that. And last but not the least, we want the product development engineers in the company to be more of an artist than a mechanic in them going fast and building amazing, delightful experiences for our external customers. So all this and then within, you can encapsulate that in the uh, efficiency play and making sure that as we deliver technology, we do it in a way that it's cost efficient and we can give the best value out to our merchants as well. I want to go in the Wayback Machine here, back to 2002, when a young Shri did, like first heard about PayPal. What was that like? What was it like joining the team? So 2002 is when I actually joined uh, the e, uh, joined the eBay side or of eBay, the company. Yeah. yeah. And um, uh, I actually uh, started off as an engineer at eBay. Um, I did a lot of log analysis work. I got very interested in data, then moved into the data operation side, went back into software engineering. Um, and over time, I took on various different roles. Those were the days where eBay was beginning to scale. Um, and I worked on a lot of projects to scale eBay yeah. uh, at that point. And um, PayPal was acquired by eBay, and I actually spent a little bit of time at, with PayPal at that time. But my real work with PayPal uh, started in the 2013 timeframe. And then uh, I was responsible for the split of eBay and PayPal from a technology and infrastructure perspective. Oh, yeah. And, and that was a massive project. I mean, it was amazing what we had to accomplish within a period of nine months. When yeah, it was super fast, right? Yeah. Exactly. Um, and then um, as an independent company starting 2015, I've been an employee of PayPal. So, you know, rising up the ranks, being at eBay, which also headquartered in San Jose, right? Yes. Yeah, because as the huge, uh, like the auditorium, it's like this like amazing auditorium. I've been there. Anyways. You know, rising up the ranks at eBay and then taking on this this challenge. What was exciting to you about you know PayPal spinning out and uh, and joining kind of the future of payments? So I'd been on the e-commerce side for about fifteen years, and I wanted to uh, get on the payment side and learn way more about uh, the payments infrastructure and how payments works across the globe. 
what compelled me most was the uh, purpose of the company. What we wanted to do was uh, democratize financial services all around the world. We wanted to make it easy for anyone to manage and move money. And we know that there are 1.8 billion people in the world who don't have access to those kinds of capabilities. Um, Dan Shulman, who's our CEO, often talks about how it's actually expensive to be poor. Yeah. And what we want to be able to do is create great capabilities through innovation where we create a more inclusive payments platform where everyone can participate. That purpose was the most compelling thing. And of course, as a geek, I was also interested in uh, how do you go serve uh, a market of hundreds of millions of customers in hundreds of currencies and hundreds of countries and, and so on? And how do you build it in a way that it is safe, every transaction is secure, and then we serve our merchants in a way that they get to take every single transaction. You, you might have heard that uh, our conversions rate uh, conversion rates are in the 89%. Oh, no, I didn't know that. That's yeah. crazy. And compared to the competition, we are at least 2x more. Our nearest competitors competitors are in the 40-ish percentage. Wow. No, and, I didn't and, know that. And that's a huge leg up we have. You know, growing up in India and, you know, the idea of sending money potentially back home or, you know, sharing... Uh, sharing money with uh, with other people. Was this something that was like a challenge growing up? Like, did this kind of strike a chord when you started to dive in uh, into into PayPal back when you're working through the nine month uh, nine month tech tech split there? Uh, no. So look, I think um, I moved to the US in uh, the 1996 timeframe. And in the early years, um, I'd have to go to the bank and figure out a wiring instruction yeah. that would probably take 72 hours yep. uh, for money that I would send back home to get home. Um, and of course, with the acquisition of Zoom, uh, we now have a capability where I can send money to my parents or my in-laws in pretty much a matter of what seems like less than 30 minutes. That's amazing. And it goes straight to their bank which means they can use a debit card to um, use that money right away. Um, and that's that's very exciting that uh, uh, those of us that have moved far from home have the ability to help our families back home through capabilities of that nature. I want to take a step back and look at um, kind of the future of payments. Uh, you know, we've seen digitization kind of take over payments. Um but what is next? Like, what is what is kind of like the next thing on the horizon? I know you can't share all the details here, but uh, what are some of the things you're excited about? So, you know, I'll, I'll actually step back and uh, maybe uh, do a quick pass on the history of money itself. For the longest time, yeah. it was all about uh, uh, currencies and coins. And in, starting in the 1950s, the cards first got introduced. And in the late 90s-ish, e-commerce actually started off uh, in a big way. And then in the 2000s, it was the beginning of uh, mobile as a medium uh, of payment. And more and more of the transactions have been moving online and mobile. That said, there is still a lot of cash at play all around the world. Digitization has started and it's accelerating, but it is probably still, there's uh, at least a couple of decades before we say we've hit a threshold in digitization. What I'm excited about is the experiences that you're beginning to see. Like, I mean, um, the ability for someone to send money to somebody else has become so easy now. Uh, or for that matter, to go online and be able to check out across tens of millions of merchants, that, that's become extremely convenient. Um, or sending money back home like we talked about, or creating an invoice for a service that you provided and getting paid for it. Um, all of these things have become much more safer, easier, and convenient um, all, all across the globe. And, and um, what I now notice is how, first of all, in e-commerce, if you look, um, it brought about a revolution where there was a time pre-90s when you would go to a shop. And with e-commerce happening, shops started to actually come to you. Yeah, you, you now shop where you are, and you can shop for anything around the world. The world is one large, unlimited shelf of goods that you can buy from. Um, to all the way up to, you can now conduct commerce through devices in your surroundings. 
You may have a voice agent at home that you could use to add something into a shopping cart or purchase. And finally, um, something as convenient as you don't even realize you made a payment and it actually happened. You you probably have taken a ride share like an Uber or a Lyft. Oh, yeah. When do you pay? When, you mean once the ride's completed or? Yeah. Do you actively pay? Oh, no. Yeah, it's just exactly. Yeah. So what's happening with payment experiences is it's somewhat becoming ambient. You express uh, the intent to take a ride or order some food and payment just happens. It's no longer that frictionful activity that you did at a store at the end where you had to check out everything and 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 pay. So a lot happening from an experience perspective, a lot happening from a speed perspective, a lot happening from a security perspective. And collectively, that's just exciting. It's also becoming easier for uh, all kinds of people from various parts of the world, various um, segments and various demographics to participate in that economy uh, where they can move and manage their money faster. There's a little mission trivia here. Um, I'm looking at our team. Did you know that the first paycheck paid to me for mission was via PayPal? <laughs> Wow. Uh, actually, like my first like six paychecks were, were via PayPal. Um, they were not big, and uh, it will always hold a place in my in my heart. Um, and it kind of is one of those like, yeah, I was thinking about it before the interview. Like one of those little experiences that happen where, at that time, you know, we we're a super small company, we just needed to figure out like how can I pay my rent yeah. <laughs> in the fa- in the easiest way possible? How can I, we'll figure out like tax implications later. Uh, and then we, you know, figured out and became a real company. Um, but it's just like, those are the type of experience that happen on the fringe where it's like, I need the money right now. Um, and those sort of opportunities, like you said, the 1.8 billion people that need those type of, of, of things. My question is, how do their technologies come into play in that? Whether you're on, you know, an iPhone, a tablet, a desktop here in the U.S., yeah, you know, whatever. But for, you know, we, we have listeners in over 130 countries. If you have, if you don't have one of those technologies, if you only have access to, you know, X, Y, or Z, you don't have internet, how do you look at, you know, creating solutions for those type of people? If you look at our remittance service, which is Zoom, um, what we actually do is allow the sender to use any method of sending. In fact, many of these folks, before those services became available, would actually have to travel, probably skip their work, go to a store that would send money to their country, stand in line for a while, probably pay very heavy fees, and eventually the money is on its way, right? Uh, today, you can do that on a mobile device. You can do it on, on a website uh, as a sender. Um, but on the other side, um, there is something that is as convenient as you receive it in your bank account. But there are also places in the world where we'll actually deliver the money home. And um, in, in many cases, that is the mode uh, that's uh, applicable and relevant and preferable. Um, The bottom line is connecting these people in this transaction. And uh, whether that is digitally through a direct deposit or uh, a uh, transfer through a person handing that money by hand at the destination, uh, all of those are things that we need to cater to and make sure that we deliver to what the customer needs. We can't do this only on our terms. We need to do this on the terms of what our customers need in the markets they're in uh, with the facilities that they can avail. It's crazy how like friction-free, you know, peer-to-peer payments are now. I mean, it's it's remarkable, right? It's Absolutely. Like, um, and I just got hit with some ridiculous wire fees the other day, $25 wires fee. Come on, give me a break. And uh, and I was just thinking, I was like, all of these sort of things are going to be are going to be gone in the future. Um, you know, how much banks try to hold your money for as long as possible uh, to, to limit that sort of stuff. Um, you know, looking, looking into the crystal ball, like what, how does money continue to evolve uh, and payments continue to evolve? So one, at some point in time, uh, the physical form of money will start to diminish or disappear. 
and money will go entirely digital not just the transaction that you do whether it is in store through your mobile phone or for that matter even bridge technologies that i like card and so mm-hmm. on uh, but eventually one money will become digital the mode of transfer will continue to become even more digital um and uh while we have seen the beginnings of these digital currencies i think we'll see it evolve even further and become mainstream at some point in time um the what what you need to keep in mind is um the the act of moving money or paying for something is just going to not be a big concern yeah uh, it it's it just becomes safe secure and convenient no matter what kind of transaction you want to have and no matter where you want to have the transaction between people across the globe that that just becomes super easy it already is in many cases but that'll continue to uh, grow as well then what about you know cryptocurrencies um how does that play into to all of this so cryptocurrencies in the form they are available in today have become a little more of an asset than a currency yeah so people uh, i think um in many cases people uh, buy and hold it for appreciation of value yeah the day to day volatility of the currency has not made it very conducive for commerce yet um and merchants who operate on very thin margins don't uh feel like they can accept cryptocurrencies and still do a, a viable business uh, but at some point in time we've seen the um start and emergence of stable coins and 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 things of that nature i think grounded on the learnings that we have from cryptocurrencies so far um there'll be an eventual design of a digital currency that is uh uh in many cases uh issued by uh currency uh, authorities that provide those currencies today uh properly regulated uh but think of it as a uh a way where you're not dealing with physical money anymore the issue itself is digital the transfer is digital the storage is digital um and and therefore the the convenience and most importantly the cost of it will start to drop to a point where suddenly that large population of people that we talked about can easily participate in the economy as well i want to talk about kind of like the it side of the house um you said it's about 20% of uh, of your time um you know we talk a lot on this show about like keep the lights on operations about like the end of kind of like the ticket taking mentality and into the innovation side of things as i it leaders you know roles are changing and but CIO, CTO, CDO, whatever it is. Um what do you kind of see as like the role of IT in in today's companies? Uh in terms of the internal IT itself there are two distinct aspects to it. One is all the corporate platforms that you have whether it is for human resources, mm-hmm. um legal, uh your financial back office um and and so on. And those platforms have to be built in a way that um uh, whether it is your HR practitioner a an employee or for that matter a sales person can do what they do daily extremely easily mm-hmm. and um so that they can be productive and they can focus on the value creation not in wrestling with the systems yeah. uh, that they're dealing with this is why i mean i would say the internal it portfolio has moved more in the direction of design thinking and experience design not just the underlying uh, nuts and bolts of how to offer those systems which brings me to the employee experience itself yeah um most of us are beginning to focus on the employee experience and the intent there is to delight our employees in their engagement with the company um productive employees are more engaged engaged employees are more inspired inspired employees innovate more and that is something that we absolutely wanted the company we want inspired employees who are innovating on behalf of our customer and delivering great value uh to to those customers and how do you do innovation what are some of the areas that you're that you're doing that here internally we we look at innovation in uh three buckets and this is a standard industry methodology but there is innovation that happens in people's jobs day to day which we call horizon 1 innovation 
Um, and then there is the uh, what we call the medium-term innovation, the one to three-year timeframe where you're looking at the things that you need to deliver over the, the three-year timeframe and uh, what capabilities you need to create, what experiences you need to build, what designs you need to undertake uh, to help achieve that. And then there is, that's what we call horizon two. Uh, and the horizon three innovation is post three-year timeframe. Many of these are just seeds you're laying, you're not exactly sure where it's gonna go, uh, but you make many of those small investments. You start to build um, a proof of concept uh, or pilots, uh, you test ideas, and some of those ideas then take off, become big, and then can lead to new lines of businesses for the company yeah. as well. So th that's the way we think of innovation. There's a, uh, a very large innovation practice at the company. We have innovation labs in San Jose, in Singapore and in India. Uh, and through those innovation labs, we actually interface with the external community as well, both academia and uh, companies, startups. Um, we have an innovation portal internally where people submit ideas and those ideas get voted on. And then we pursue some of those ideas for execution uh, too. And in many cases, we also do this through our venture arm yeah. where we invest in some early um, startups uh, which are pursuing certain kinds of things um, across a broad spectrum of things, financial services and financial tech, of course, but also in some areas of technology that we find could be great for the future. Yeah, I wanted to talk about, um, you know, PayPal has been pretty forward on acquisitions of companies that are, you know, core that that you, you know, making a bet on those folks. Um how does that play into, you know, you talked about initially when uh, you were you were involved in uh, in PayPal splitting from uh, from eBay. How do you kind of look at that now as CTO? How do you look at acquisitions? Acquisitions are uh, a very important part of our growth strategy. Uh, we as technologists get uh, involved very early in the acquisition cycle when the hypothesis and the business case is built. Uh, then we get involved in the due diligence to ensure that um, the company that we are bringing in has uh, great sound assets that will sustain the long term and create the value for the customer that we, we desire. Uh, and then we, of course, go into the integration phase. When they come in, uh, we have to figure out how, uh, how those capabilities will integrate with what we already have, not just within the core business, but across the other business units that we've acquired over time as well. Um, and in doing so, looking at the best of breed across um, all of the uh, business units and acquisitions we have made and creating a uh, sum of all parts that's better than any one yeah. uh, of the capabilities that we have. Um, so M&A is a very critical cycle and um, uh, we often have not just... Um, uh, a, a great customer base we bring in with an acquisition uh, or a capability that we bring in with the acquisition, but we bring in great employees and great talent who then collaborate with the rest of the ecosystem and create even better ideas going forward. You're probably one of the you know, foremost people that has actually like spun off a company with a technology like that. Were there any like lessons or stories or anecdotes that kind of stick with you from that time that you kind of like carried with you to the rest of your career? Uh, look, I mean, I actually came into um, the uh, eBay PayPal family through an acquisition that was made at that time. So I, I know what it means to come from an acquisition. Yeah. Um, but when you come on board into the company, there, there is just this amazing range of capabilities and the scale that that you notice. Um, we've we've had um, through the acquisition of Similarity some amazing risk capabilities that's available as a service that we can offer. Uh, in the past, we thought of uh, risk services as something that's behind a payment to secure the payment. And what we are seeing in the market is risk services can stand independently and be an offering of their own. Yeah. Um, and we've made various other acquisitions over time. I think um, what the uh, Braintree acquisition um, gave us is the ability to interface with developers as a segment yeah. and serving them through great platforms that we build. And then uh, last but not the least, um, you know about our acquisition of, um, with Braintree came Venmo. Mm -hmm. And Venmo uh, brought in a completely different angle of what social P2P meant. And, and that social P2P uh, has created a 
a completely different level of engagement with our product than we saw previously. Yeah, I, I, I wanted to ask about the Venmo acquisition because it is one of the funny things that I think, you know, if you were to go back 20 years and say, you know, that people were able to like seamlessly pay other people money, you'd be like, yeah, it makes sense. Like you should be able to do that. If you're like, but also they get to write notes to each other that are publicly seen by other people and that everybody loves this. Like you, I, I feel like that little wrinkle was so critical to the success of, uh, of Venmo. And I feel like, you know, from my perspective, like, you know, there's no slowing down. Like this is something that people feel very, um, attached to. Right. Um, I'm just curious, like, was that something that felt weird on the outset? Was it something that you saw that you were kind of tickled by as well? Having been a customer champion company, one of the things that we have realized is it's important to not go into any uh, product design with our own biases. It's best to actually have a open mind and uh, uh, just listen very carefully to your customers because they will tell you exactly what they need or want uh, if you listen properly. They may not articulate it in the exact words, but the meaning will come across. And uh, knowing that, uh, when I look at Venmo, uh, w- w- what we found is there is a segment of customers who want to engage in a social conversation um, through a payment. And uh, of course, every customer on the Venmo platform has the ability to either like share that publicly or share that privately or not share it at all. They still have the choice, but they want to engage in that conversation. And it's been a very vibrant platform with uh, great engagement, great conversations. And of course, payments is what it does. I'm always private, uh, but it's fun to send your, one of my friends, uh, the other, we were watching, um, or we went out to dinner and, uh, and he was like nudging me. He's like, check out, check your Venmo. Uh, you know, it's like stuff like that. You're just, it's, it's a, it's a funny, it's a conversation starter. Um, I do that with my daughter all the time. If yeah. she has not called me for a week, <laughs> I will actually send a money request saying, so, you've not called me. This is Here's actually minus $2. <laughs> I, I, I do the same thing to, uh, I did this, uh, to my girlfriend because she wasn't, she didn't respond to my text. And, uh, and so I Venmoed her, uh, like a dollar and I was like, I love you. And she's like, why are you sending me money? Um, no, but I think that the, the, like, again, this is like the, I know it might seem, especially to the listener, like that this stuff is a little trivial, but like the proof is in how many people use the platform exactly. and, and how many people engage with it. Um, actually we talked to, um, do you know Job Cheat? Job Cheat, yeah. Yeah, for, for, he was at, yes. e- at eBay. Um, he was telling us the story about um, that when they created, uh, gosh, what is it? I think it was like sale. No, one of their one of their bots. They created a bot basically, and one of the big learnings was that people loved communicating with the bot in emojis. That like over and over and over again, people knew it was a bot. And they would continue to communicate via emojis to the bot. Um, and it was like, who could have kind of predicted that? Yeah, bots are a very important part of the um, technology capabilities that a company needs to build. Um, and um, we have started to leverage uh, chat bots in our customer service. And we are seeing some amazing interaction, engagement, and success there. So final Venmo question. Um, you decided to keep it like standalone. Um, I'm curious, like, was that just like the power of the brand or, or like the power of the platform or just like kind of no, no need to, uh, you know, disrupt it for no reason. Or I'm just curious. Uh, It's been our integration philosophy for a long time that what we want to do is we want to keep the identity of the company that we acquire and we want to continue to maintain the purpose for which they first started. Um, and that gives um, uh, those acquisitions the ability to continue the journey that they had started. And in many cases, given the strengths that we bring to the table, probably even accelerated. If you end up uh, focusing too much on integration too early, 
you may actually never achieve the value for which you you acquired the company in the first place. Now, at the same time, what we do in the uh, in the back end is to make sure that we create synergies for the underlying capabilities, whether it is infrastructure or identity or payments capabilities and so on. That's where we'll go with the integration, but the experience itself and the with the brand's relationship with their customer, that we want to sustain and, and continue uh, even after we make the acquisition. Back to the geek squad for a little bit. Um, you host your own show internally here. Uh, and I thought this was really cool. And it's something that we've heard from a few leaders that they do something similar. Um, tell me a little bit about this. Yeah, so we do uh, a couple of things. One is a, a podcast called Geek Speak, which we do once a month. And uh, I have um, uh, five segments on what is a one-hour call. Uh, the first segment is uh, a strategy session with our uh, chief architect, who may come and talk about like uh, the drone formation at the Olympics or quantum computing or something of that nature. Then we'll bring in uh, what we call a geek spotlight. This is an engineer that we pick who's making a difference in ways beyond what their day-to-day job is. They built an amazing productivity tool that everybody else is using, or they innovated in a certain way that we want them to show off. Then we bring in two business leaders each time and uh, we have a conversation about their business area. And we end the show with um, a book that I normally announce I'm giving away 20 copies for. Uh, And uh, so that's what Geek Speak looks like. It happens every single month. Uh, It's all internal audience, of course. The second thing we do is um, a, a video show called Tech Matters, which is an episode that eventually compresses down to about six to seven minutes. And it's a technology topic Uh, And the intent there is to make sure that across the company of more than 20,000 employees, uh, there is an understanding of what's going on in technology, how we are addressing it, why it's important to address, and to make sure that everyone has some relevance with what's going on in tech. Oh, that's great. So then that's company-wide. Both of these are open to the full company audience. Uh, On Geekspeak, it's mostly geeks who (laughs) uh, listen to it. Uh, but on uh, Tech Matters, we actually put it on our uh, internet and it's available to every employee. When you are mentoring, teaching Geek Squad, um, you know, we talked before the episode that we could probably do an entire episode just on this. Um, but what are some of the pieces of advice that you give to young engineers that want to, um, want to be a CTO someday? Well, I mean, uh, there are many different things, right? One is um, I start with the foundation of the ingredients that I've seen contribute to uh, what most successful people have achieved. And I I put it in um, three areas. I call it IQ, EQ, and CQ. IQ is the intelligence quotient. Uh, EQ is emotional quotient and their people's ability to work with other people and teams and so on. And CQ, which is, in my mind, the force multiplier, is the curiosity quotient. And being always curious about everything, whether it is technology or working with somebody else or being on a team or doing a transformation, that curiosity compels you to learn more and more and build yourself and and, and cultivate those uh, capabilities as, as you go forward. Of course, the... Uh, outside of these three, the most important thing in my mind is grit. Yeah. There are times when things will not go your way. Your ability to get up and continue to go and keep moving forward and learn from that experience is very important too. Um, so that's the foundation that I start most people off with uh, early. But I do talk about the concept of micro ambitions, which is figuring out that one step at a time, not mark a destination that you want to go to and try to figure out how you chart a path to it, but always figure out that next one step that that you want to achieve. What's one of the moments in your career that you've had to rely on some of that grit that you've had to persevere through something tough? I would say it happens every three years or so. I've had many such situations where things were not necessarily going the way I expected. And I either needed the guidance of a mentor at that point in time or somebody to just nudge me in the right direction um, and to recultivate the confidence that I needed to move forward. Um, but each time I did that, I would say 
the what I learned from it is the ability to look back and go, oh, you know what? I've um, I've been in a situation like this before. I've been able to get through it, and I'll be able to do it this time too. I strongly believe that if you set your mind to something, the world is the world the whole world is going to conspire with you to get you there. And uh, uh, and if you treat people right, that is doubly so. Um, and uh, that's generally how I've built my career. And you are hiring. I should I should add that. So if you want to join the Geek Squad, um, we'll link it up with the show notes um, because uh, it seems like it's a good time uh, to be on the Geek Squad. Um, before we get in the lightning round, I do want to talk a little bit on AI, ML, automation, uh, maybe a little RPA. I'm curious, like how do um, how does automation fit into the work that you're doing at PayPal? So I'll give you I'll give you a few examples to illustrate these things. Uh, there's a lot happening in technology, right? But um, particularly on the topic of automation, what we've done over the years is down in our infrastructure, we've gone from what used to be a manually managed fleet to an automated fleet. But what we found with our scale is even automation was not enough. So we are now moving from an automated fleet to what we call an autonomous fleet. And an autonomous fleet is think think self-driving car, except this is your infrastructure that is driving itself. And that happens on the foundation of capabilities like ML and AI. You gather all the signals, every server is telling you something, every application is telling you something. And using those signals, you can help make sure that the underlying infrastructure is healthy and is remediating itself. Um, and then the application of AI and ML goes much further, uh, whether it is in customer support use cases and risk and fraud use cases. There are a lot of different areas. Actually, even in sales lead kind of use cases, there's a lot of ML and AI that, that we begin to apply. Um, and then um, finally, uh, what was the third thing? Oh, uh, AI, ML, and automation. Oh, and then RPA. When we look at workflows within the company, um, there is a lot of opportunity to take the repetitive and redundant work and to ensure that that is taken care of by an underlying system. Yeah. In many cases, we've actually built helper bots, whether it is for engineers uh, or for customer support agents, or for that matter, people in other uh, functions as well, we build certain bots that take away the repetitive and redundant work and then allow them to focus on where uh, they they can create the best value, not worrying about just uh, a road reputation. And how much does like, you know, private versus public cloud kind of play into that and your capacity to do those things? We've been uh, uh, on a private cloud setup for um, uh, many years now. Uh, we are starting our journey and migration to the public cloud uh, our development and test infrastructure is already in the public cloud and has been for about two years, and that accounts for about 15% of our infrastructure. Uh, we are now beginning to put a fair number of um, uh, production or customer workloads in the public cloud as well. Uh, the way I see it in the journey, we will probably be a hybrid multi-cloud environment, as in like, we'll always have certain things on-premises, a lot of things will be in the public cloud, and even in the public cloud, it'll probably be across multiple public clouds. It seems like a lot of, you know, companies of your size are kind of talking that way. Um, do you kind of think that that's the new the new normal? Is kind of that approach of hybrid cloud with multiple public clouds? One, I mean, um, public cloud is no longer an if question at all. Yeah, I mean, it's now a twelve year old industry, and if any one of us were to start a company today you'd start natively on the public cloud. Yeah. By the way, when we make acquisitions, the incoming acquisitions, many of them are natively on the public cloud. Yeah, absolutely, yep. Um, I think hybrid multi-cloud is probably the pragmatic uh, approach to take when you think cloud. Um, there will be certain uh, aspects that you may be more efficient in doing on-prem all the time. At the same time, you want to tap into the agility and the economics of what a public cloud provides, so you'll do it there too. And as you start to deploy across multiple geographies and jurisdictions, the same cloud provider may not be available in all those locations. So you will you will have to work with multiple cl cloud providers. Okay, last, last question before the lightning round. Um, you operate in 
a ton of different countries, areas, demographics. Um, are there what are the challenges that you, that you go through working in, in that environment? I think the uh, first thing I would say is building a global platform that caters to the number of countries and, and currencies we are in. Uh, takes a lot of forethought from an architecture perspective. The blueprint that we built was one where uh, the underlying capabilities that required in each market were configurable and you didn't have to write new code to do that. Um, and that global platform is a competitive asset that that we believe we have. Uh, at the same time, operating in different market means being subject to the laws and the governance that comes in each one of those markets. Yeah. So we also build that in a platform-centric approach. Um, uh, this is what you probably begin to hear in the industry as uh, reg tech or regulatory technology. Yeah. And it's a compliance platform where we can we can feed it the obligations we have in each one of these markets, and uh, we can configure it in a way that every transaction we take on the platform, even if it is cross-border, is compliant with those obligations. And we're doing it in a way that's right and in the bounds of what's expected from us. Um, last but not the least, uh, serving the globe also means being global as a company yeah. in terms of our footprint and our employees and so on. So uh, across all of those offices, having uh, a way for, one, hiring and retaining great talent, uh, allowing all of them to be productive um, and uh, working not only towards the um, uh, specific uh, market they're in, but serving a, a, a global market no matter where they are and collaborating with each other. That that adds to the third challenge and opportunity as well. Especially, you know, with technology products where people are working, obviously like, you know, 24 hours around the clock, the sun never sets on PayPal. Um, it's got to create some leadership challenges for your team as well, I'd imagine. Yeah. And what we do on that front is uh, make sure that the way we organize is where um, each region has uh, autonomy in what they're doing. And not everyone needs to get on a conversation with everybody else around the world to accomplish something at the company. Yeah. And, and then having the right kind of collaboration capabilities. But at the same time, the mindfulness around understanding who's operating in what time zone and being respectful of how to set up a conversation with the other individual if you have to, and using technology to do that, uh, whether it is video conferencing or whatever it may be, um, all, all of that helps in, in uh, allowing everyone everywhere to thrive. You know, it... It reminded me of, you know, PayPal has such a cool lore here in Silicon Valley with like PayPal Mafia and obviously like Peter Thiel and Elon Musk and uh, Max Levchin and all those folks. Um, do you kind of feel like there's some sense of like, you know, this this lore or this like history of connecting kind of Silicon Valley to the rest of the world and, and also vice versa uh, of connecting the rest of the world to Silicon Valley? Look, I think they, uh, when you look at PayPal and many other companies, the innovation first started in the Valley, but uh, that innovation was powerful enough uh, for many of us to realize that it is applicable to the whole world. Yeah, uh, Everyone across the globe can leverage this innovation, use this uh, to, to make what they do every day easier, uh, to connect more people around the world through commerce and through payments and so on. Um, what we need to make sure, though, is if you think only the bubble of the valley and innovate for the valley, 200 miles out, it's no longer relevant. Yeah. So you need to take into consideration being a customer champion company. You need to make sure you're out in the field. You're out in the markets. You're meeting merchants. You're meeting consumers. You're understanding what they need. And you're building for all of them, not just the valley. So valley gives access to... Uh, great innovation, uh, great talent. But then we have expanded and now we are a global company where we have talent all across the globe. And uh, that has given us the, what I would call the diversity of creative thought that has now allowed us to serve the whole globe everywhere. Let's get into the lightning round. These questions are fast and easy. Just like the Salesforce platform, you can go to salesforce.com slash build mobile apps to learn about building apps fast and easy on the Salesforce platform. We love Salesforce platform. You will too. Check them out. 
Fast and easy questions. Sure, you're ready. I am. Number one, what app are you using on your phone that is the most fun? Audible. What book or podcast? Well, you read a ton of books, uh, but what's what's one of your favorites uh, book or podcast that you've read or listened to recently? Time, Talent, and Energy. That's a book I read recently, which uh, helped me a lot in terms of thinking about um, how to create a great team that's productive and thriving together. What do you do for fun? Um, I actually, I love quiet time. <laughs> I'm an introvert. And if you were to leave me alone, that's the uh, best thing I can think of. But long walks uh, with my wife, going hiking or something of that nature. Great food always is awesome. Favorite thing to cook or eat? Uh, favorite thing to eat. Um, I I mean, I'm, uh, I can eat any cuisine, but I love Indian food. Me too. It's just so good. What? is your best advice for a first-time CTO? Um, in terms of advice to a CTO, I, I would say um, it's always important to connect before you lead. Um, learn as much as you can by just connecting with everybody in the organization. Also connect externally with um, the the other peers in the industry, uh, connect with academia where you can, connect with the vendor ecosystem as well, but create a 360 degree of connect, connecting and learning. And through that, um, uh, take the problem statement that you're very clear about and you know, uh, but bring the whole world around to help you solve for that problem statement. What? technology are you most excited about going forward? Um, actually, a couple of technologies that I'm pretty excited about that uh, we um, are beginning to launch. One is the uh, the intersection of containerization and clustering mm -hmm. and what that offers in terms of creating that autonomous dynamic fleet that I was talking about. Uh, second one is the uh, intersection of machine learning and cybersecurity and how we can now, through the right kind of investments, understand those unknown unknowns in cybersecurity that we can address proactively versus having to react to it when something happens. Shri, that's it. That's all we got. Great. Thanks awesome. so much. It was for, very nice uh, talking to you. Yeah. Thanks for coming on. Any final stuff to plug? Definitely open Rex at, uh, at PayPal if you're, uh, if, you're, if you're looking to join the Geek Squad. Absolutely. Look, PayPal is always looking for great talent around the world. Uh, and uh, we are operating on a purpose here. And if you want to make a difference in the world, you definitely want to be at PayPal. Thanks for hanging out. Thanks for listening. And now here is Dragana from the Salesforce platform team with our Trailblazer Tuesday segment. Hi everyone, Dragana checking in for another Trailblazer Tuesday segment. Today we have Ines Garcia with us to share some great things that she's been working on. Hi everyone. Hey Ines, uh, super pumped to have you on and I'd love for you to share with us a bit about what you do and especially all the cool things you're partnering with Hivon. Agile coach and a Salesforce MVP. And what that means together is I help companies to become more agile whilst delivering Salesforce technology. So I've been uh, doing some work with Hive for the last couple of years. And I work in the customer platform team there. And that's all about customers. So we have Salesforce is our customer master like record place where all the different systems will integrate. Salesforce helps us from like acquiring, just to tell you a little bit of the story of a customer from like, you know, generating that brand um, to going through the, the, the funnel of somebody becoming a customer. And that may be through different channel partners or direct through the website, which some of it sits in Heroku, for example. And then, so when somebody wants to activate the product, we take them through an onboarding journey so that we can collect all our customers' information in one place. And then when that happens, we'll give them entitlements to our IoT platform. We call it uh, Honeycomb, just to go with a Hive theme. Um, and then through, through that, um, 
would will trigger um, the fulfillment of that product, the billing and all these sort of things. Um, and then in support in life through marketing cloud and communities, for example, service cloud, definitely. So earlier this year, one of the things that I wanted to accomplish was to kind of elevate some very repetitive systematic things um, that happens in service. So we had, at the earlier of this year, we had the, um, the idea to have a proof of concept where chatbots could help us to do exactly that. So how we could find some very systematic things that the agents will go through day in and day out, um, and we could elevate and alleviate it with bots. Um, so I am very happy to showcase this uh, specifically because the team not only did in the first quarter of this year that proof of concept, but actually by the end of it, we had three bots live and running, which is, you know, to me, it's a big success. And you definitely need to partner with good technology to help you to get to market faster. And I think the other important thing was to decide which kind of use cases we'll be using because we all have tons of different ideas. So there were many, many ideas on the table as a use case that we could do. Um, so the three bots, if you're interested to know the story of the three bots that we have live, they were, um, so, so the first one we went live was the delivery kind of bot. So very light kind of authentication that we'll um, check with the customer. They just want to know when the delivery is coming. So ask a few questions, fetch the information in Salesforce, surface it to the customer, and then do you need more information? Yes, no, and then you can always hand it to an agent. Um, and just with that one, is almost 50% of every time a customer reach for delivery-related items um, is just handled by the bot. Then another quite similar one is about the appointments. So some of the Hive products requires an installation. So we don't provide any personal information, but we can ask a few questions and then we can surface when is the appointment happening. And again, always it's good to enable an agent or a customer to ask for further help to an agent. And with this one, I think it's, it's around 40% of the related queries are handled by the bot. And then the last use case we went live with was um, about some troubleshooting. So um, for one of the products that we get most of the inquiries, yeah, so we released all of that um, in January. That's super cool. And so that's amazing. So 50% almost of all like delivery inquiries, like delivery times, which is such a common question, are now handled by a bot. And you said appointment and the troubleshooting bot, those are about almost 40% of all things you said that are handled, which is super cool to hear. And not only are you really speeding it up uh, for the customer, but you're also alleviating it for like the employees because I can just imagine how much more time they now have to focus on the more difficult cases or installation inquiries that they have. Super cool. So what's next here? What do you guys plan to do now? Like, are you planning to take this beyond the proof of concept? Is it all fully live now? What do you expect to see? Yeah, so this, this we are live and, and basically what we did since Q1 has been hardening the spots, right? Because it's all about finding out the ideas for any business that works. So with that, what I'm trying to say, we all have ideas. We all want um, different bets, I guess, to call it into the market. But what is the bare minimum that you need to prove that the idea or that bet actually is doing what you expect? So you can minimize waste if that idea actually is not performing as you may want. Um, and or um, get the most out of it is actually something working really well. So that's where we have concentrated the most. Um, I think coming up in the pipeline for next year will be a couple more troubleshooting kind of bots for other products um, because it seems to, to work quite well. And then we're doing a similar um, application for your online um, experience. So it's not only on chat, but maybe you will be on 
on the desktop in your login account section. So you could be doing some similar sort of like flow kind of thing where we take the customer through a series of steps. Oh, that's super awesome. Well, I can't wait to hear much more about that. Who knows, maybe you have a chance to have you on for a full episode so you can share all this amazing goodness with us down the line. But before we let you go, there's a question we ask of every single person that comes on IT Visionaries. And that is, as you being a trailblazer and like you said, a Salesforce MVP, what is one piece of either career advice or implementation advice, anything that you live by that you can pass on to future trailblazers and other IT leaders? I think would be concentrating what you want. And with that, I mean that the world is very broad. There is just so much going on. And even in, in the amount of innovation that Salesforce is giving us every single release, um, is huge. So um, I do quite a bit of work with like mentees trying to get into this ecosystem. And one of the things I always say is like, what, you know, what makes you up in the morning every day? Do what you want. Like if it's, you know, related with some kind of work in the background that you, you had or um, some specific things that interests you, like marketing related stuff, just focus on what you want. There is just so much. Um, so yeah, not even the sky is the limit, I guess. I love that. It's like, let your passion drive your next career choice and take you to the next level. Ines, thank you so much once again for joining us uh, all the way from overseas. It's a beautiful morning here in San Francisco and I wish you a pleasant afternoon. IT Visionaries is created by the team at mission.org and brought to you by the Salesforce Customer 360 platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Build connected experience, empower every employee, and deliver continuous innovation with the customer at the center of everything you do. Learn more at salesforce.com platform. <laughs>